So let's hear God's word then, Titus 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. All right, well, last time uh, we began these words of Paul uh, to Titus here and to the believers in Crete. And uh, um, sometimes Paul can be... um, more complex, <laughs> moving from, say, a ninth, 10th grade level <laughs> up to uh, 11th or 12th grade level, or sometimes even crossing into college level. Uh, and so sometimes using a sentence diagram uh, is, is actually quite helpful to, to be able to follow his train of thought and so forth. And so um, we did that uh, last time. We started uh, with that. We'll continue with that here uh, this evening. And so... Um, if, if you look at it here, even as I review, we, we started with verse 1, and, and Paul begins by describing himself in these two ways, saying he is a slave or servant of God, and then secondly, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he continues, um, basically says, look, I was chosen and sent by Christ to serve the church um, in, in, in the specific task of nurturing um, to nurture the faith and to nurture them in their knowledge. Now, of course, obviously this begins with evangelism, but then uh, what Paul is emphasizing here is that growth, that maturation, that growing believers in grace. And so um, uh, this is true um, for Paul, and it's true uh, that Paul is consistent with uh, the other apostles too. So he has preached this truth according to, Uh, to the gospel according to the apostolic message and this then leads to godliness well now by extension Paul is giving this task to Titus he too now is to do the same kinds of things and by extension then this is true of all the elders in the church and in a certain way to every believer every one of us in some ways anyway has the same task. We are slaves of God. We have been sent by Christ to do the work of the servant here in this way. Now, none of us are apostles in the official sense, but we've been sent by our heavenly master to uh, nurture one another in the faith and in our knowledge of the scriptures. So obviously, that's my task as your teaching elder. That's true of all teaching elders, missionaries, and even elders in general, and then as parents, as we teach our children, Sunday school teachers, Bible study leaders, you name it, okay? So, <clears throat> we come now to the next part, and so verse 2, the New King James says it this way, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. All right, now, Paul's got this really long sentence, so we, we're having to break it up here, and this, not only are we starting in the middle of it, but we're not finishing it yet. Um, 
And so if you look at the, the diagram handout that I have here for you, notice we now go from the according to or for the purpose of ideas now to in or on the basis of ideas. Um, now this is uh, another prepositional phrase, and the most basic meaning of this preposition is in or on, or you could say upon, hence the meaning on the basis of. It's all connected here in this way. And uh, one of the commentators really stressed the on the basis of idea, and I, I think he's right. I think it's very helpful for us to see the point. Okay? So Christ sent Paul not just with the message of hope, but on the basis of hope. Paul has this hope too. And the reason why any of us can have hope of salvation is that there's hope there. <laughs> okay? It's based on that hope. And uh, so I think he's making a, a helpful point here. Um, now, as I've already said, the uh, main idea, the main word here is hope. And as I've said on other occasions, this is not the vague, wishful hope, the unlikely improbability of some situation, like the Steelers are going to win the Super Bowl this year. That's quite unlikely at this point, even though they did win today. Um, uh, or we might say we, we might hope that our government leaders will repent and cease serving the dragon. There's, there's very little hope that will happen until there's uh, a judgment. But the idea here is uh, a certain hope, a sure hope, a confident hope. One commentator put it this way, a firm assurance. Another one said it, a confident expectation. So notice, <clears throat> this is not something we have yet, right? It's not something we hold on to. We don't have eternal life yet, at least not in its fullness. But it's something we're looking forward to, something we're hoping in, we're, we're expecting to happen, but we won't have it until we get to glory. And so it's a certain hope, but nevertheless a hope. And as Paul says here, it's a hope of eternal life. That's the, the whole focus here. And so we know, even now, while we're sitting here in 2022, we know that's, that, that that's going to be ours forever. Okay? When we die, or if Christ comes back before we die, we know that's the end result. And so this is the message of the apostle, but this is the basis of what the apostle does, too. This is what drives him. Um, and so Paul, as a slave sent by Christ is, uh, you might say, standing on this, and this is what motivates him and encourages him and, and us too. All right, so <clears throat> again, if you look at your diagram, notice now there are two things that uh, expand on the hope of eternal life. The first one is which God promised, and the second one is, but he revealed his word. So let's look at the first of these, which God promised. Now notice, this is obviously modifying this hope. God promised it. God <clears throat> promised eternal life to those who believe in Christ. So let's turn here a moment to John chapter 3. <clears throat> Probably the most familiar verse in all the scriptures, and it speaks to, to this idea. In John 3 and uh, verse 16, okay, New King James words it, <clears throat> For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There it is. That's the promise. 
And certainly there are many other passages that promise the same thing. Let me expand on this just a bit. That word so does not mean God loves us a whole bunch. Now he does, but that's the point in Ephesians chapter 1, chapter 3, and other passages. The point here is that so is taking you back to what he said before. So if you look at um, uh, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God. So in that way, same way as Moses with the serpent lifted up the Son. So you remember the story, Israel grumbled and so forth, and the, the serpents came out and were killing them and so forth as punishment for their sin. And then Moses cried out, and so he said, okay, make this serpent, put it up on the standard on the top of the pole, and whoever looks at it will be spared. They'll be saved from the judgment. So in the same way, Christ is lifted up on the pole, on the standard, the cross, of course, and if we look to him, we will be spared the judgment. That is our hope of eternal life. Because the day of judgment is going to come for us too. And we deserve judgment, just like anybody else. But if we're looking to Christ, that bronze serpent as it were, we're going to be spared the judgment. We're not going to be bitten and poisoned and die and so forth. And so this is, again, the message that we are proclaiming, but it's also what we're standing on. This hope, this certainty, and God promised it. And so that's what uh, Paul says here in this next phrase, which God promised. Now, you'll see again on your diagram, there are two now phrases that expand on that. The first one's actually a clause, who cannot die, uh, excuse me, lie. And then the next one is before time began. So the first of these then. Notice how the first one modifies God specifically. Okay, so, which God who cannot lie, and your translations often put it in there in that order. Um, and so here now, Paul is saying, look, God promised this, and he, he doesn't lie. He's, he tells us the truth. So let's turn a moment then to Numbers chapter 23, where we see this idea from all people, Balaam, in the mouth of Balaam. And in Numbers 23, verse 19, here he says to Balak, <clears throat> God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do, or has he spoken and will he not make it good? And of course he continues here. Um, you remember we saw similar language in 1 Samuel 15 when Samuel was speaking, speaking to uh, Saul. Hey, same ideas. God promises and he doesn't lie. So if he promised eternal life, if we look to Christ to be spared the judgment, then it, that's what's going to happen. Now, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we really looking to Christ? Do we really have faith? But if we do, then, yeah, this it's, it's guaranteed. It's entirely trustworthy. And so this is what makes our hope sure. This is what makes all the Bible true, for that matter, and everything that God does and what he has promised to us. All right, now, as I have said, um, I don't remember if I mentioned it last week, but uh, certainly in the introduction, 
that when Paul begins a letter, he always gives us a little nugget, a little um, crumb, if you will, and says, hey, I'm going to say something more about this later. And this is one of those points. If you look at verse 12 here in chapter 1, it says that all Cretans are liars. And not only that, <clears throat> but the gods of the Cretans are liars too. They, they worship the Greek gods. Zeus in particular was their principal god. And Zeus lied about various things. The other gods did too. But the God of the Bible doesn't. The true God does not lie. And that's why we have hope. That's why it is certain. And so Paul is standing on that promise as he goes forth. And he is proclaiming that promise. All right, now, the next phrase is before time began. And notice that modifies the word promised, which God promised before time began. Okay. This is one of those places that is a hint, a clue, that there was some kind of covenant even before God made anything. Now, in our circles, we call this the covenant of redemption. And uh, if you turn back just a couple pages here to 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says the same here. In 2 Timothy 1, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 9, um, the last word of verse 8 is God. And so it continues now. Who has saved us and called us with a, with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, in verse 10, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay. And so, uh, same ideas, okay? Even if you finish the verse of verse 10, right? Who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's, again, there's your promise, there's your hope. But you see how Paul here to Timothy talks about something before time began. And so we, we have these places uh, scattered throughout the New Testament especially that speaks to this. And, and Paul says it here in Titus 1. And so um, what this means then simply is that the Father, Son, and the Spirit made an agreement before they ever said, let there be light. And the agreement that they made was to save God's elect. Go back to verse 1, right? The faith of God's elect. They promised to do this. It was a plan. Now, it works itself out, uh, obviously, after God made things. And we see that especially beginning in Genesis 3 in the garden, where God first says the promise of the Messiah there in verse 15. And so that's where it begins. And God says simply that he would send his son to fulfill the terms of the covenant for us. And now he's done that. And that's why we have this hope. And so God promised this. And God doesn't lie. He also promised this. And in fact, he even thought it all up before he made anything. It's not a reaction to Adam's, Adam's sin. It's not a second thought or, you know, wow, boy, they really messed it up and the flood didn't work. I better think of something else. No, no, no. God planned this before time, before Genesis 1-1. And so that is why we have this certainty, this certain hope. 
All right, now let's look at verse 3. And the New King James says, But has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. All right, so again, back on your diagram here, you see now this is the second main idea that expands on the hope of eternal life. And it begins with but. And so the contrast here is with before time, but you could say he has revealed his word now at the appointed time. So that's why the the but is there. Um, And so the main idea here then is that God revealed his word. So he planned this before all things, and then he made it known to us. And I already hinted at that in uh, Genesis 3. Now, we could certainly talk about God revealing himself in the living word, in Jesus himself. And that's certainly all part of this. Uh, John 1, right? The the word made flesh. Um, But Paul is emphasizing the the message. Note the next line here, the point in time, and then through preaching. So that's his emphasis here, is the, uh, the gospel message, the apostolic message. And so God then made this known, brought it to light, this promise of eternal life, he gradually has revealed to us. Planned it before he made anything, but has gradually made it known. So if we go back to Genesis 3.15, at least just here in our thinking, um, in seed form, as we say, just that, that first hint that the seed of the woman, the he, will crush the head of the serpent. That's the first promise of it. Doesn't say very much, but there it is. But then, when you come to the covenant of Noah, we have more revelation. It's revealed more in that way. And then the covenant of Abraham, it's even more revelation. And then when you come to the covenant of Moses, it's quite a bit more revelation. And then you come to the covenant of David, even more than the new covenant promised in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, even more, and in the New Testament, right, just exponentially more information, revelation, so that we can understand what the hope of eternal life is. So so the believers in the Old Covenant, they understood these things, just not as much as we do, because they had less information. And so they had hope. We have a clearer hope, but it's the same hope of eternal life. So to um, give a little bit more detail to that, the seed of the woman would come and defeat Satan. So we know that there is a a man who would come. Well, you come to Noah, and now we know that that man's going to be a descendant of Shem. And then you come to Abraham, and we know it's going to be a descendant of Abraham through Isaac and through Jacob. And then you come to David, and we learn that he's going to be a descendant of David. And so each one of the covenants gives us that, that new revelation. We're not looking for someone in the, tri, in the uh, clan of Jephthah, uh, Jephthah, I should say. We're, we're, we're not um, looking for someone who's a descendant of, I don't know, you know Zebulun or whatever. We're, it, every one of these covenants gives us something more, more information. Now, in terms of what we would do, we see a hint of that in Genesis 3 too, don't we? Because Adam and Eve, as soon as they sinned, tried to cover themselves with leaves and it doesn't work. You cannot cover sin. We can't. Only God can cover our sin. And it can only be done through the shedding of blood. 
And so God was the first deer hunter or whatever it was he killed, right? And he, and he covered them, yes, with skins, but especially with blood. There is payment for sin. And so after that first act, then we see that repeated, right? We see Cain and Abel, and we see Noah after the flood. We see Abraham doing it, and on and on. And of course, when we come to the covenant of Moses, and it's really explained for us, especially in Leviticus, this idea of substitution, that the substitute has to be perfect and must keep all the terms of the covenant without blemish. And then he's to take that punishment on himself or itself in the case of an animal. And then he's going to bring us to the promised land. And of course, we know ultimately even Abraham understood there was a a greater land than the one in Canaan, right? Hebrews 11 teaches us that. And, And we know then he's going to rule as our king. And we know he's going to send his spirit and give us new hearts. These are all the things that were revealed in the Old Testament. And so God revealed his word. But then notice how, again, look at your diagram. Paul expands on that in two more ways. First of all, he says, at the appointed time. So all along he'd been doing this, but then there was a specific time. As New King James says, in due time, okay, God's plan, God's decree was going to reveal the Messiah at the right time. And, of course, he sent Jesus um, at, was it zero? <laughs> it's actually about 4 B.C. But uh, anyway, he sent Jesus during the Peace of Rome where there were many roads, many shipping lanes, open borders in the right sense of what that means. (laughs) Um, Judaism was a permitted religion. Um, Everybody spoke the same language of of Greek. Um, And Israel had been scattered. The diaspora, there there were Jews all over the Roman Empire and even beyond that. And so Paul and others could go right to the synagogues and bring this message. And so all this is set up at the right time. God sends Jesus to, to, uh, to do this, to, to accomplish salvation. And now Paul and the others can, can you say, easily spread the gospel. And so at just the right time, Jesus was born of Mary. And he then grew without sin, He was without blemish. He was baptized by John in the Jordan, identifying with his people. He was preaching, teaching, and healing for three years or so. And then he became that perfect substitute, dying an atoning death, conquering Satan, crushing his head, as well as defeating sin and death. And then he rose from the dead, ascended to God's right hand, and then he sent that spirit that Jeremiah and Ezekiel promised. He sent it to the church, of course, at Pentecost. And so, um, this is all Paul is driving at when he says these words. And so to go back to verse 1, Jesus then appointed apostles, not just Paul, but then to take this word to the ends of the earth. So our next line then in verse 3 is through preaching. So he revealed his word in all these ways, through Christ ultimately. And now here he says through preaching, through the proclamation of the message of truth. And so um, 
Notice then he expands on preaching um, with this next line here, which I, I was entrusted. Now, most of your translations are going to smooth that out in some way or another. Um, but uh, one commentator made the case that the repetition of the pronoun here is not because Paul is being boastful, but because he's just amazed that God would cho- that Jesus would choose him. Right? He persecuted the church. Okay? And so God chose Paul to serve him. Christ sent Paul with this message, this message of hope. And he's just amazed by that. But notice he's entrusted with it. We'll, we'll talk later about stewardship. But that's connected to this idea. He's been given this as a trust to hold it, can you say, in his bank account, so to speak, and and to protect it. And, of course, he did. Uh, We have the three missionary journeys, his trip to Rome, and then his time in Rome writing all those letters. He wrote four there and and probably 2 Timothy there as well, we believe, Uh, 13 altogether. Uh, We we know he went elsewhere after Rome, and he's had come to Crete, probably went to Spain. There were surely other things that Paul did that we are not told about. But he was entrusted, and he went around preaching this message of hope. Now the last line here is, according to the command of God our Savior. Paul did not decide to do this on his own. He was commanded. God commanded Paul to do this. So let's turn just a moment to Acts chapter 9, and uh, <clears throat> where Paul um, encountered Christ. And, and just briefly, if you look at verses 15 and 16, remember, this is after Christ encountered him, and Paul's blind for these few days, and this is actually Christ speaking to Ananias, and he says, uh, verse 15 of Acts 9, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before king, Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. You remember Paul repeats this two other times later in Acts. You know, it is a big deal, obviously. God commanded him, not just converted him on the Damascus Road, he commissioned him in this way. But we have this also for the other apostles. So let's turn now a moment to Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew 10... We have here Christ uh, choosing the twelve, and then in verses 5 to the end of the chapter, he gives them instructions. And most pertinent to what we're talking about would probably be verse 7. Verse 7 of Matthew 10, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. All those promises given in the Old Covenant, hey, they're here. Hey, the day of the Lord has come. The Messiah has come. And so this is the message for all the apostles. The hope of eternal life is here. And so again, it's not just Paul, but all of them. And then, by extension, Titus is going to do the same kind of thing as Paul's delegate in this way. Say the same about Timothy. And then, of course, we expand to us. It begins with me and Stan and Joe here in this place. But again, it expands beyond that really to all of us. We, not apostles, but have the same general task. 
We've been commanded and trusted with this message of hope. It's been revealed to us. So let's take it. Let's share it with others. Let's nurture one another in this faith, in this knowledge. So if you turn to Matthew 28 then a moment, and yes, this was originally spoken to the apostles, but there were other disciples there too. Remember, there were up to 500 there after Christ's resurrection, and, or 120, you might say, there in Acts 1. But remember these words, of course, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we're all part of this task in different ways. Let me read a moment from... Uh, John Stott and what he says in this way. He says this, Consider now, as we pause and reflect, Paul's account of his apostleship. Its purpose is to further or foster in the people of God a new triad of Christian graces. Not now the familiar faith, hope, and love, but faith, hope, and knowledge. So we saw faith and knowledge last week in verse 1, and now hope. Here in verse 2, he continues, We, although we are not apostles, yet if we are called by Christ, especially as leaders in the church, should have the same vision and ambition, namely to cultivate in the people of God committed to our care the faith which lays hold of God and of his Christ, the knowledge of the truth which issues in godliness, and the hope of eternal life which, though still future, has been promised and guaranteed by God. And I would add, you know, that's in a nutshell what our message is. So um, uh, here are the, the main thoughts in this diagram. Now let me end with this. Notice how Paul says here um, in verse 3, how God is our Savior. See that? God, our Savior. And then if you look at the end of verse 4, Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is one of those uh, striking things that uh, presents itself here in this letter. Six times in this letter, Paul says about God and Christ being our Savior. Now, we're like, well, yeah, okay, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is God has only called our Savior 24 times in the New Testament. It's kind of like we talked about hallelujah, and you expect it to be there more than it is. We expect the idea of Savior to be there more than it is, but it isn't. And six of the 24 are found here in Titus. And so this idea of God saving us through Christ is the message given to Paul. It's the message that must be communicated by Titus and you might say, built upon in these practical ways that we will see. And, of course, that's the message for us. So we've seen eternity past, right, before time began. We're talking about eternity future, the hope of eternal life. But in the present time, at the appointed time, and Paul's time, and now here in our time, we not only have hope, but we are to partake of the amazing task of proclaiming this hope.
to ourselves, to our children, to our family, to one another, to those outside of these walls. And so Paul, you might say, is delegating us in this way. All right, well, we'll close there uh, tonight, and we'll pick up uh, in verse 4 next time. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you again for um, giving us um, this message, and and not just these words of Paul, but as he says here to, to the words found throughout the Bible, the message of hope, the message of salvation, the message that Christ has come fulfilling your promises that we might be saved. And so as we are here now in this Advent season, as we are especially remembering the, the work of, of um, um, the birth of Christ, of the incarnation, uh, we, we pray, Lord, that this would encourage us to uh, follow in the footsteps of Paul as, as little apostles, as, as uh, uh, many um, uh, messengers, as it were, under, under Paul and the other apostles. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, use us then, and as we stand on this hope and as we proclaim it, and that you would then use us to extend your kingdom both uh, in this place and, and to the ends of the earth. And so we pray these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.